Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Birth Queen podcast. Thank you, Charles, for clearing some time for us today. I'm so excited that we're making this happen. The next time, because there's going to be a next time, I promise no it'll be in person. How are you today? I know no, that I'm doing good, man. I am here yes. with the Birth Queen herself. I'm excited <laughs> to be here. Look, Mama, we made it. We made it. We're here. So, um, you know, just I just appreciate you. I appreciate you for who you are what you mean to this community for um, you just being a champion for, for mamas and particularly for black mamas and, and families. And so it's an honor to be here. I know we got a lot to cover, but uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to just uh, talking about some good stuff. Yes. So I like to start with a very easy question. Okay. Who is Charles Johnson? Yeah, that's a that's that's an easy one. You would think it would be easy one. I am um I think the best way I describe myself is a dad advocate, right? I am a father uh first to two amazing boys, Charles, who is uh eight going on forty-eight, and Langston, who is uh seven. And but the best decision I ever made was making uh, my wife uh Kira Dixon, Kira Johnson. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to meet a woman that absolutely changed my life, um, challenged me to be a better person, a better man in every single aspect of my life. Um, and unfortunately, she was taken from us far too soon. Kira made the ultimate sacrifice giving birth to our second son, Langston, in April of 2016. And, you know, you know, Rich, I know you've heard me tell my story. Um, but I'm always transparent about the fact that when I walked into that hospital on April 12th of 2016, the thought that Kira wouldn't walk out to raise her sons, it, it never crossed my mind. Right. Um, and so to be here six years later, um, so immersed in the fight for birthing justice and the fight for health equity and the fight to not only just improve maternal health outcomes, um, but to completely eradicate the maternal mortality crisis, period. Um, this has been a very, very, very interesting journey. It's one I never saw for myself, mm -hmm. um, but I'm extremely proud of what not I, but we have accomplished uh, together, but we still have a lot, a lot of work to do. So who I am is I am a advocate. I am a um, warrior for uh, women's health, um, health equity, um, you know, anywhere there is um, injustice or people are treated unfairly, I feel that if I have the ability or I can lend my voice in proving the situation, I'll be there. What What was your life's work before all of this? I don't know the answer to that. So yeah, so I've I've been a I've been a uh, serial entrepreneur my entire life. Okay. Okay. I'm putting out fires. So, um, you know, I. Uh, developed a couple of businesses. And so we had a business, uh, Kira and I built a business together. We had a business that was in hospitality where we consulted for um, hotels, restaurants, did training. Um, we also did sourcing and procurement. So um, that was, people always ask me like, were you, you know, a pastor or a lawyer in the past? Like, no, never had any desire to be public figure whatsoever, which is the interesting irony of the twist that my life has taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So there's so much, but um, because you're here and we don't often talk about partners and the complexities yeah. of being a black partner, sure. um, can you talk about, you know, I you tell your story so much. And so I, I'm very sensitive about like you continuing to tell your story, but I do want you to share what it, as a black man, what you were battling real time yeah. to support her, but not you're going to tell that complexity because yeah, I know no, so, I no. don't understand that or think no. about that. Yeah, let's get into it. Um, and thank you. Thank you for asking that question because it's, it's, it's so important. And so when we take a look at what racism in medicine really looks like and yes. how it truly manifests itself and how biased, and if you want to call it, if you want to keep it cute and you want to call it implicit bias, you can, but we know what it is. It's racism, right? And we talk about how these things really manifest themselves in real time. It's not always um, dropping the N-word. It's not always slide remarks. It's not always insults. Oftentimes it is delays and dismissal and the inability to validate pain and concerns that lead to detrimental and oftentimes far too oftentimes fatal consequences. But on top of that, we have to really take a look at the lived experiences of Black people, right? And what that means to show up and how we have to be conscious of self-regulation in ways that our majority or our Caucasian, you know, counterparts don't. And so what that meant in our situation is so, um, you know, I'm very direct. I am, I consider myself assertive. I consider, I consider myself an effective communicator. But, and I'll share this, and I haven't really shared this often publicly, Rachel, but, you know, for those of y'all who aren't as familiar with my story, so Kira um, was allowed to, after what was supposed to be a routine cesarean, um, she was allowed to bleed and suffer needlessly for more than 10 hours while myself and my family begged and pleaded for them to just do something. And so just to level set this. So. At the most well, premier Los Angeles hospital. Yeah, and this is way. a Cedars-Sinai. And it's like, you know, I know I kind of jumped on. So this is a Cedars-Sinai hospital. This is a woman who went in not only in good health, but in exceptional health, right? And so now here we are. Um, it's clear that my wife. Sorry. All right. So um, we're here at Cedars-Sinai. Kira's condition is deteriorating. There's very clear signs that she's bleeding significantly internally, and this has been going on for hours. And so hour after hour, I'm continuing to ask, look, well, what's happening? They said they were going to do a CT scan. CT scan never came. They said they might take her back from surgery. Nobody ever did anything. Um, and what I will share with your audience that I haven't shared often publicly is the whole time Kira's condition is continuing to deteriorate. She's in immense pain. Um, the thing that she kept on saying is, baby, please stay calm. Please stay calm. Because Kira knew in her divine, in her divine femininity and her infinite wisdom that at her most vulnerable, she was concerned for me. 
because mm-hmm. she knew in that situation as a black man, the moment that I raised my voice, the moment that I slammed my fist on the nurse's station, the na- the moment that I put my finger in the doctor's face, the moment that I grabbed somebody by a lap coat, I never, I was no longer a husband that was concerned for his wife. I became a threat, right? Mm-hmm. And she also knew that if I went, everybody was going to go. Like her brother, her mom, everybody, because they were looking at me as the patriarch. And so that's that thing that I struggle with. I struggle with every single day. There's not a day that goes by. It's been seven years. There's not a day that goes by, Rachel, but I don't think to myself, what should I, could I have done differently, right? Like, how could I have approached this? What should I have done? Like, should I have turned up? Should I have turned over? So what should I have done that could have made a difference? Um, but you're in this box, you're in this trap because the moment, if you don't do enough, you feel like you failed and you're inadequate. If you do too much, then you are seen as a threat and then you get arrested or removed. And so the only scenario, Rachel, that I can conceive of that would be worse than what happened that day is had I lost my temper lost control and been removed from the situation and then Kira passed and I wasn't there. Yeah. Right. Um, but like, I still hear her voice in my head telling me, baby, please stay calm because she knows, she knows how much I love her. She knows that there's nothing I wouldn't do to protect her. Right. And so in my mind, I'm, I'm suppressing my natural instinct, which is like, yo, and that's another thing too, that we, I want us to talk about too, because we move towards solutions, right? Oftentimes, us as a people, the only thing that we're armed with is, I'm going to turn this place out. That's the only thing we know because we haven't been given the tools, or the resources, or the latitude or to do anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it hurts. It hurts to think about that, that like, you know, I didn't have because... I was a black man. I didn't have the latitude that a white father would have. Because what are they going to do? I, I, you know, they're going to they're going to go and they're going to get irate and they're going to turn up. And they're, but they look, they just they they look they're looked upon as concerned, right? It's the same thing we see with black women when they get when they show emotion, when they show anything, they become an angry black woman, right? And they get saddled with all the stereotypes and and BS that comes along with that. I'll also share this when we talk about this, and I, and I and I and I'm grateful for him and 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 being this transparent and also his self awareness. So. Um, you know, I've developed a relationship with Alexis, who is Serena's husband. I know a lot. I'm sure a lot of your listeners and viewers are, are very well aware of Serena, what she went through. Um, Alexis and I were invited to do a conversation together for the White House mm-hmm. last year. Before last. Mm-hmm. And what he said um, just stuck with me. What he said is he said, look, man, he said, there's been no there's been no other time in my life where I was so aware of my privilege than when my wife was fighting for her life. said, my wife is a superhero. She's Serena Williams, but they still would not listen to her. She knows her body and they would not listen to her. The only reason that she got the CAT scan because I, as a white billionaire, cis male, went out in the hall and demanded it. And I told them that if they did not give her what she was asking for right now, that I would spend every dollar I had burning this place to the ground. Mm-hmm. 
Can we say that again? It took her white husband to save her life. A white like, billionaire husband. Billionaire husband. Threatening to use every resource at his disposal, destroying the hospital to save her life. And he said, unapologetic, he said, that's, and said, that's the only difference between me and Charles. So that's the only difference. Because he knew he could. But was also, I'm sure, flabbergasted at the fact that he had to do and, he, and that's what he said. He said his, his mind was blown. He was like, yo, he, and he he said that I was, I, I became so aware. He said, honestly, he said, he said, I'm a white billionaire. I'm used to getting what I want. He said, but there was no, there was no other time in my life where I've become that aware of my privilege until that very moment. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I, I appreciate him. I appreciate him for, for, for calling it what it is. Yeah. For recognizing um, that for seeing it for what it was, um, because oftentimes our pain, our things get marginalized and whitewashed, right? Is there is an excuse, there is this, there's a, there are all these other reasons for why these things are happening to us in the eyes of other communities yeah. and what they are. Um, and so it's, um, it's tough, man. And the thing about it is, right, so you and I know that my story, my experience is not unique. I deal with, and I know you deal with, and you hear and you see these families. And the reality of the situation is this, is that the names, the faces, the locations change, but the story's the same. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, right? The conditions, the age, the, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. We expressed our concerns, our concerns, our concerns were dismissed. Yep. We were marginalized. And by the time they finally did something, it was far too late. Rinse and repeat. It's the same thing over and yeah. over. And I feel like that's such a huge thing because now, again, you have Tori and everyone keeps asking, well, why? Well, how? Like, we're telling you racism. We're telling you dismissal of pain. We are telling you. <laughs> like, I think it's, <sighs> this issue is one of those unlike hunger and homelessness where I just... Yeah. Many of us, including Black people, I say all the time, it's a hard one to digest. That you're really to acknowledge that you are okay dismissing me only because of the color of my skin at the most beautiful and vulnerable time of my life. It's right. very hard to digest and to comprehend. Um, but that's what it is. So until we acknowledge it, then we can't change it. And I had someone yesterday tell me, well, when you, you know, when you go to speak about this, why don't you just highlight the solutions? Cause people are just kind of ignoring and tired of hearing about the, the deaths. And I was like, um, well, uh, I actually was fully traumatized hearing about Tori's death. Um, so there's that we might need to just, put a pin in that and move forward. But it's, it's this thing, I think, you know, I equate it to like school shootings where just because a lot of them are happening, shouldn't mean they're normalized or we're Absolutely. desensitized. So I, the fear of this is that we're getting desensitized. That's real. You said something right there, Rachel. That's real. That's real. Right. And I think that, um, and even for me, right. Like I, I and like I said, this is, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're like family. And I, I think that, you know, I, you know, I'm, 
I take every one of these, and this is real. I'm trying to do this without getting emotional, right? Um, I mean, it's a part of it is emotional. I take I take every one of these losses deeply personally, right? And I know this not logical, but I'll, I'll share. I'll share with you and your audience, right? Like every time I get a call, every time I hear one of these, every time I sit and I talk on the phone with these fathers and I hear them pour out, like I take it deeply personally, right? Because every single day I'm with my foot on the neck of somebody or something trying to make this stuff stop, right? And the first, my first instinct is, God damn it, like, what more could I have done to make people hear her, to see her, to understand, like, where did I fall short? And I know that's not logical, but that's the way my mind works, right? I take it deeply yeah. personally. And I feel like in the same way that I feel like I failed my family and my wife, I feel like I failed these, these, these families have lost these moms, right? I know that's not, that's a whole nother thing to unpack. I know that's not logical. Yeah, I'm just telling you that, what it is. We, right? We're going to work right? through taking but, that off your shoulders but and your that's that is um that's it and i think that it's like yo you said it you said it, it's like yo we're telling you we're telling you that the sky is falling we're telling you why it's falling um and and we have the, the reality data. Is, <laughs> like yeah yeah it is and um you know, now it's one of the things it's like, I do feel, so saying all that to say, it, it's, it, it's frustrating. It is, um, it's a lot of things, but I'm encouraged because I do feel that you're making progress, right? Like I've seen so much progress. I've seen people coming to the table and I could tell you some nightmare stories about things that I've been through, um, you know, people who have um, politicized my wife's death, people who have um, done the mosey wosey and cozy up to me just to find cover because they needed um, to make it appear that they were doing something. I tell you all those things, but I think that now we're seeing people coming to the table in significant ways and meaningful ways, making real investments, making real commitments to turn this around in ways that they haven't been before. And it's mm -hmm. almost like we look at the multiplier effect and we look at the trajectory of this and we look at where we were just five, six years ago, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we look at, even if we, even we talk about, even if we take legislation from a standpoint, and let's be clear, like I, I spend a lot of time and energy on legislative stuff, but I hate politics. That's another irony about this work. Um, but if we look at it, right? Like 2017, we had to scratch and claw to get one, the, first ever piece of federal legislation passed to prevent mothers from preventing childbirth. It was a $3 million investment, maybe five. Um, and it was something that people said would never get done. We got it done. And now we're back just a couple of years later with a package of 13 different bills, you know, with over $2 billion investment on the table. Right. And so we talk about the trajectory of this. Right. Um, and I was having a conversation with, uh, a buddy of mine who's an OB, and I know that everybody's probably seen the latest number that came out showing that there was even a spike uh, during the pandemic in the number of losses. We were previously we were losing around 800 mothers a year, and now it's upwards of a thousand. But we are by no means losing this fight, right? We're by no means losing this fight. Um, and people just need to understand that the reality of the situation is, even though it pisses off and it's painful, 
the progress that we're making when we look at it in terms of the macro and we look at it in comparison to other social justice efforts, the progress that we're making in this movement is actually unprecedented. Right. You know what I mean? I think, um, and I want to say for anyone that's listening and doesn't know, the 13 bills is coined the Momnibus Act. So yes. we need all of the support possible. Um, it, it's kind of this thing I feel like, though, you know, you know, you lift the rug, then all the roaches scatter. Yep. <laughs> then you see the roaches, then you have mm-hmm. to kill them, and then you have to clean them up, and then, you know, figure out some new stuff. So I, there has to be some mess before sure. we implement change. And I, that's my big thing with this is we don't like to identify that slavery had a big hand sure. in where we are today with maternal health period, but black maternal health and obstetrics. The history of obstetrics is rooted in capitalism, not the support and care of women. Absolutely. And so until we're willing to say, oh, okay, now what do we do with this information? It's not saying all OBs are wrong, but if you don't know that you were reared in a broken system, sure. then you're part of that problem. Sure. Um, and I think all of us need to stop taking things so personally, right? I am the most sensitive actor Pisces on, on the planet, but sometimes we just have to really take ourselves out of this. And I feel like that's where we're failing mothers is we don't center them mm. at all. Right. And that's why I named my nonprofit birth queen is because Queens are at the helm yep. and that none of us are here without a birth queen, you know? Um, so many questions. I want to, I'm going to start here cause I don't want to, miss this what do you do for you and what advice do you have for for fathers whether they get involved as an advocate or dad advocate or not you still have to dad solo and you're still a human being that did not plan this yeah. At all. Like no man is like, yeah, I'm gonna have some kids by myself. That's just like not a thing that, a that thing. happens, right? Um, so it's pretty like unfortunately, single motherhood has been happening for a very long time, since the beginning of time, right? Men go off right. to war, they don't come home, right? Not on some you know, messy stuff, just it's just part of it. Part of, yeah. So how do you cope, heal? Do you feel like you've started to heal? Like that's important. And I want you to even have that time to kind of address that. Yeah, I think. Because you stay busy. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. I, um, the healing journey is definitely a process, right? I think that, I mean, I'll kind of talk about my personal thing. I'll kind of talk about advice to other, to other men, other fathers. I think I may be a little bit of an outlier for, for several reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, the big picture is, I think the first, and, and you know, we talk a lot, and I know we have a lot of similarities having two boys. And for me, I'm so clear. My kids saved my life, man. My boys absolutely saved my life. And I think yeah. that from the onset, there wasn't an option other than to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I just remember just like my first thought immediately, like, oh, like, yo, you're responsible for these two 
amazingly precious gifts that Kira's left us. What are you going to do to make sure that their life is not just great, that it's exceptional and that they are exceptional and extraordinary and that they live up to everything that Kira and I hope that they would ever be, right? So that has been my focus from literally minute one. Okay. Um, um, and so for me, it was immediately like this, just getting into it, like it was me like, oh snap, like how am I going to keep them moving forward? How am I going to nurture them? How am I going to make sure that they are good? And like, even from, from very early on, like they became very much my coping mechanism. Like I'm not even going overboard. Even so to this day, even seven years later, I'm overcompensating. And so like for me, it, I, I wouldn't let anybody help. I wouldn't let anybody do feedings. I wouldn't let anybody change any diapers. I was burning myself out. I was changing. And, and so for those of y'all who don't know, my boys are 18 months apart. So I, we, I literally had two under two, um, you know, these two like sleeping in the bed, was changing every diaper, doing every feeding. Um, and so my family had to have an intervention like, yo, bro, like this ain't, this isn't sustainable. Um, and I remember they're like, you just need to go someplace. You need to go someplace. You need to go away. And you need to take some time for yourself. And I was like, no. They're like, yeah, 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 you need to go. And I was like, all right. So they finally, they had this and they're like, all right, well, what am I going to, what am I going to go? What am I going to do? And I remember, I never forget, um, I flew down to Miami and I sat down on the beach by myself for three days. It was the worst thing ever. It was the worst. Because solitude is the enemy, right? And I didn't have that. And I was literally, now it was like, hitting that face with mm -hmm. the reality of this because I wasn't keeping myself Stopping. right right um and so I found you know so much joy in just being a dad man and I've, I've, I've found ways to do a better job of the balance and to um make sure that I'm not completely burning myself out um but as far as for me as far as seeking healing um a large part of that for me has been this work, right? Mm -hmm. A large part of that has been this work, Rachel. And so for me, there's so many things about my life and what happened that I can't change. Um, but what I can do and what I can see tangible results in are this work and my kids, right? Um, and so that's why I pour myself into. I think that um, for a while, I was not um, consistent about my therapy, about my self-care. I was very much machismo. I was pushing through it like long, like, you know, I was doing what guys do. Um, I've done a much better job of that being very consistent um, because I understand that not only am I, do I have my trauma, but I've literally every single day I'm taking on the traumas of everybody else as right. I try to help them on this journey as I hear these stories and, um, you know, supporting people and fighting justice is tough um and so there's a there's a lot of that i personally i love you know i'm, I'm a huge kid man i'm a huge kid i love coaching the teams i love traveling with my boys um and so that's it and you know people I, i'm be i'm gonna be real with you too right like i'm i'm, I'm, I'm gonna keep it all the way real um The reality is the real ashy, crusty, funky reality of my of my existence is that people oftentimes talk about 
self-care and these things that should be prioritized. But the reality of the situation is, is when you are trying to achieve things that have never been done, and when you are trying to slay dragons, and when you are trying to do the impossible, self-care just isn't at the top of the list. And there may be, there may, there may come a time, right? But right now, it's <laughs> it's applying pressure. That's the priority. Um, and I've un- I I am clear and I understand that that is the reality of my existence. And so I don't really. It just is what it is. Yeah. Um, and I understand that that I'm accountable um, to something that's much bigger than myself and certain things just are going to be sacrificed. Fair enough. And I can challenge you to maybe make some time. Yeah. And I appreciate it. And like I said, hopefully there will be a time. And I will make some time. I'm going to do some time. You'll be proud of me. I'm going to take some time this summer. I'm going to I'm going to do some things and yeah, but I mean, I, I am getting better. I am getting better. And um, I'm asking this question actually for my girlfriend and for others who, who are dealing with grief. But my girlfriend just lost her mom after like a really long, just slow suffering mm. and all of that. And I've been talk trying to advise her through it, but yeah. um, it doesn't go away. It doesn't. Right. I think she has guilt about being sad or mad or whatever the emotion yeah. kind of that comes up. So I try to encourage her to embrace whatever that feeling is. Cause so can you talk a little bit about like, I guess I'm sure it comes in waves and each yeah. day is a little different. Sure. Sure. So, so for me, grief, and I think one of the things I've learned is like grief is, I don't know, I can't hear you 20 seconds behind. What I'm hearing you say. Anyways, I'm just going to look straight ahead. So anyways, <laughs> the thing about grief is this, right? Is that um, grief is not linear. It's um, it's not a straight line. And that's one of the things that if you're not familiar with being in that space is that you can become frustrated with yourself because you feel yourself making what you feel like are strives and moving forward. And you feel like certain feelings are not as present. And then all of a sudden you get boom, you get hit with the left hook out of nowhere. So one, yeah. grief is not linear. It's not a straight line. And there's going to be some good days and you'll make what you think are steps forward. And that the pain, you made it, you made a point that was profound. The pain does not go away. It evolves, right? Uh-huh. And your ability to live with it evolves, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I kind of have this motto and it's stronger every day. And that's my thought is to be stronger every day. And, and I think that having a North Star and to the extent that people are able to um, find ways to honor the person they've lost in their existence, I think that's helpful, right? And to allow that to be integrated into part of your purpose. And so for us, um, our thing is we just wake up and do our best to make mommy proud, right? And we embrace that. We embrace the wins and we celebrate um, We celebrate that. I think that as far as like advice, one of the big things is, um, I, I tell anybody, you know, sol- when you're dealing with grief, solitude is the enemy. Right? Solitude is the enemy. And to find community 
when and how you can. And finding community looks different for everybody. And, right. and, and, and be okay with finding your own way to move forward. And don't mm -hmm. feel pigeonholed into what people are telling you your grief should look like. Um, uh -huh. like you need to go to therapy, you need to go to therapy, you need to go to a group session. That might not be your thing, right? Um, and also the other thing that depending on what you're facing, right? One of the things that, that I find with these men that I reach out to who've lost their, their partners and their wives is that one of the hard things for them is that even the people, even if they have strong villages, strong communities, strong families that are there to support them, the people who are closest to them and love them the most simply just can't understand in yeah. ways that other people that are walking the same walk can. And so yeah. that's why this community is so helpful and important, right? And so same thing, I, you know, I was dealing with these, uh, I was connecting with these brothers who have this podcast called Guys in Grief. And they talked about finding community and being able to, be, how, how strangers have, are able to support each other in ways that that immediate family, you know, as much as you want to, like, you want to, you want to, you want to be there for this person, but this person, this aunt, this uncle, this brother, this sister does not know what it's like to rock a child to sleep at 4 a.m. that is just simply crying uncontrolled because his mommy won't come home. They don't know. They haven't been there. Mm -hmm. They don't know what it's like when when your kid comes to school and other kids are asking him questions about why his mom never comes to pick him up. They can't relate to that, right? Yeah. They don't know. They don't know what that's like. You know what I'm saying? They don't know. Um, they don't know what it's like for you for those kids on Mother's Day. They don't know, right? And so, daddy. I think, or daddy, or daddy, right? Um, so there's a lot. And so, I, so saying all that, said, I think that finding community um, and just you know, there are times that sometimes sometimes solitude is what you need, but solitude in moderation for sure, because. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's that thing too, where I feel people, it's this, we forget that there's like a whole crayon box with a lot of colors and that's yeah. feelings, right? It's the entire crayon box. But I believe society sells that there should just be one yellow crayon every day like yeah. of a feeling. And that's not what it is. Like feelings are every color. Yeah. And I then feel if when we're not, feeling yellow, then we failed in some way. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, it helps, you know, the actor in me to embrace all the, all of the feelings yeah. because they're not going to be one. And so I, I see with my girlfriend, you know, this struggle of like, I'm not yellow. And I'm like, so you're not yellow. Hmm. We're not yellow today. Yeah. And, and that maybe it's like, we go from gray to red to yellow to orange, and then we're back down to whatever color. And that could all change within an hour, within the day, or the week, or whatever. But I think to your point, it's also being careful that we're not, we don't stay in that dark place. Um, I guess, what are your tools when it's a, a dark moment day to kind of get back? My biggest thing, I'm gonna tell you my, it's, it's so simple. It may sound cheesy, but you know what? My thing is, when I find myself getting into those dark things, getting frustrated or like, because it's, it is, it's, it's in my, for me, it is, it is, it is, it's a, it's a jumbled 
box of crayons and crayon pieces, right? It is, <laughs> it is um, the immediate loss, right? Then there is, um, you know, you have the sadness, but then it's also coupled with, yo, sometimes just anger. Like, yeah. yo, as a man, like, yo, it's rage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for me, it is, the, the simplest thing for me is I really try and just center, center myself in gratitude. And that's just that's it. I know it sounds simple, like yo. I just take I just take a moment, yeah. and it's like you know what, like like in the midst of all that we have gone through, like there's still so much that I have to be thankful for, right? Um, and just really just centering myself in gratitude and all things I'd be grateful for. And then also for me, interestingly enough, like I just do my best to center myself because I'll be honest, right? Like people, I get a lot of um, kudos and credit for like the way that. I've gone about that, the things I've accomplished, but the reality situation is this ain't me. This is really just Kira just working for me. Because if this is just me, <laughs> it would be a lot different. <laughs> it would be, be a little bit different, right? And um, you know what I'm saying? Like it'd be a little bit more Nino Brown than Malcolm, I mean, than, than, than Martin. And I. He's um, like, be calm, baby, be calm. Yeah. And so I, I, and honestly, I really just try and center myself in like Kira's lighter energy. And like, because also sometimes, like, when you're faced with decisions, when you're put in situations where you know that, you know, like this is like when things, even in this advocacy work, when it gets messy, when people try to be exploitive and there's ways that you can deal with it, right? There's ways that you can address it. And just even sometimes you have to take your, you have time to take your, take time and like, yo, just kind of do myself best to center myself in like Kira's energy, right? So I'm like, how would Kira post this? And it's like, with love and like, you know, she wasn't to be played with, but like, there's a way to do this um, right. where you are honoring her legacy in the way that you move forward, right? Because- That's really beautiful, Charles. You know, because at the end of the day, if, you know, if, if, if I, because it's so much bigger than just me, right? Because yep. anything that I do reflects on her legacy. Not only that, it subsequently affects millions of people that are counting on me to get this right. So yep. for me, it's more like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't. And that's another thing. So we talk about even this as it pertains to the present and how I. Yeah. And um, like, do I get nervous? Like if I'm testifying before Congress or doing Oprah, like any of these things. And I don't get, it's interesting, right? Like being in those moments, being in these rooms, having these conversations, like the gravity or the significance of that moment is not what I'm thinking about. For me, the thing that I'm always concerned about is like, yo, there are people that are trusting me to get this right. Yeah. Right. And so that's the pressure, right? There is a mother out there that is six months pregnant, right? There are millions of moms out there every day seeking treatment, seeking help, seeking support, seeking safe spaces that are counting on me. Right. Um, There are families that have been impacted by maternal loss that are holding on to hope for change, right? And so for me, that's where the pressure comes from. The pressure comes from not letting all those people down. I don't give a about like these people, right? That's 
where the pressure comes from is like is getting it right and not letting me down and ensuring that I never sell people out or sell them short or um you know compromise or settle for anything other than what is It's just crazy that we have opposition in this fight. You said something. You said something. The fact that there's opposition, right? Um and this is one of the things like I just so when I get a chance to come in and and talk to people like you and I get to go to places like the Doula Expo or Black Mamas Matter, um I was having this conversation, so I guess like what three weeks ago I got a chance, like the same weekend I was literally flew I did an event. Yeah. Yeah, I did an event like in the same day, like I would say Black Mamas Matter. And then what I was saying is when they were thanking me for coming, I was like, Y'all don't understand, like for me. Being in community with people like you, going places like that are restorative, right? Because so many times I'm in rooms where I am working so hard just to get people to believe this or to understand or understand and explain the problem from scratch to people that are sitting there like wanting to do everything in their power to disbelieve, deprioritize this stuff. That's that is that is 80 percent. 90% of the work that I do, right? And so to be in a place where it is, you know, it was interesting. So I, one of the things that that just kind of has become one of my new mantras. So I was in DC, I guess, a few months ago and I met with uh, Ayanna Presley and I was talking about being in the meeting with her because she's such an advocate. She's been such a supporter. I was like, it's just like preaching. It's like preaching to the choir. And she said, Charles, she's like, never underestimate the importance of preaching to the choir because you always need the choir to sing. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful, right? And that's real, right? So having so that's why when like, you know, the village calls upon me, like people who are doing the work call upon me, like I do my best because it's a two way street, right? Not only is it important for me to show up, but it's restorative for me because like yo, I just, right. it's so much of it ain't that. It ain't. It's like, yo. Well, tell us why. What we don't mm, this can't be. Oh. The sky is falling. The sky's falling. Right. <sighs> Yeah. Why it's falling. Not only is it falling, one. So it's not only it's two, it's twofold. Not only is it falling, they don't want to believe that it's falling in the first place, but then they definitely don't want to believe why we are telling that's what you said, we're telling you why it is. It's hard. I think the other component of that to anyone who listens that is in this work or wants to get involved and help is do not assume that people know and understand the issue, that there is an issue, the whys and the wherefores. So I believe what the first time I went to lobby and I text you, um, that I actually enjoyed, by the way, which was very surprising to me, um, is that I went in assuming people knew nothing. That's what you have to do. And then I didn't get emotional because I was there to explain it and stay in the facts and the figures and the clear solution. And when I did that, it was to me enjoyable for lack of a better word, was an enjoyable, pleasurable experience for both parties. Good. Because they were able to receive the information without feeling judged or criticized. And I feel like we were able to get somewhere. At least in the very least, I penetrated their brain and maybe their heart. You know, I believe when you go in assuming and kind of attack that doesn't work. 
And yeah. and I was in Cassidy's office and Letlow's office. I mean, the fact that I got put into Cassidy's office made me, I looked up at God and I was like, ha ha, you got jokes. Because, <laughs> you know, his quote last year when he was like, if you don't count Black women, our maternal health outcomes are, are wonderful in Louisiana. And I was like, oh, just don't count Bruh. Black people. Bruh. <laughs> And so you have to laugh. I don't, I mean, you're getting to know me, but I just, I choose joy and I rather just Watch laugh, you. even if something is, because this stuff is outrageous. Um, so as we, because we, we naturally segued into government and, and that I know is your work. So yeah, what, what, what do you need? How can we help? Um, yeah. Yeah, so so let's 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 talk about legislation a little bit. So let's let's let me give the disclaimer, right? Legislation is important. Um, but it is just one aspect of what needs to take place for us to fix this. Um and so we talk about legislation from a victory standpoint. We passed uh, a sweeping set of bills in California, the California Momnibus. We passed legislation in a lot of states. Um, including Georgia, my home state, expanding postpartum Medicare from six months, um, from six weeks to a year postpartum for every mom in the state of Georgia. Um, you know, New Jersey, a lot of states are doing wonderful work on a state level. Um, Texas, interestingly enough, is even getting it together. Um, but on a federal level, the first big win we said, which I mentioned before, and I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to testify before Congress in support of the Preventing Maternal Death Act. And that was the first ever piece of federal legislation to prevent moms from dying in childbirth. Um, currently, we are sitting on the precipice of a monumental, unprecedented set of legislation called the Momnibus, as you mentioned earlier. And the Momnibus is a comprehensive package of 13 pieces of legislation, all addressing the not maternal health crisis, but the black maternal health crisis. PSA. Which Why is really important. Can we talk about that before PSA. you go? Yes. It is not a BIPOC problem. It is not an economic problem. Can I've I've preached this sure. to the choir, but can you preach it to the choir, sure, the people sure, in the sure. back? So, in the so, so this is this is the black maternal health crisis, right? Um, and what I have been told when I've gone to Capitol Hill is if we were willing to remove the word black from the legislation, this would have been passed a long time ago. And people looked me in the face and told me that. But let me be clear. Um, we're not willing to compromise, but here's the here's the deal. Let me just be clear about this. While these are we are focused and we're unapologetic about it, the thing here's the as people may say, here's the gag. Every single provision in this legislation will help every mother in this country. Because wow. when we fix this for black women, we fact we fix it for all women. It just so happens that black women are getting the extremely, extremely short end of the stick. Um yep. and so we're excited, um, we're encouraged. Um, but so what we to answer your question, what we need, we need people to sign petitions to call to bug harass their elected officials to have conversations um with people who are in their community about this legislation about this being a problem we need people to hold elected officials on the local state and federal level accountable and to simply ask them 
you know, one, are they aware of the Black maternal health crisis? And what do they plan to do to prevent it from continuing, right? Simple question, right? They don't deserve your vote if they don't have a clear plan on how they, they uh, you know, and when do they even know about it, too? What are they doing to help? Um, yeah. But, you know, be aware. And then, you know, once we get this done, I already got something else I'm going to come back with. Um, they call me the house. Stay tuned. They already are sick of me. They already are sick of me. Um, but <laughs> they're like, he's back. They're so hope. Um, but I think How, so. Okay, let me ask you about the Republicans, though. Like, what? Because I was in two Republican offices, those were actually the offices I had the most fun in. And yeah. it's been really interesting. When I share that with white people, the look on their faces, they're like, you have fun. So, here's, so, so, so let's get into I'm really glad like, you brought How this do up. we make this not like so, it's so it is not a bipartisan issue. No, like it's, no, 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 it's no, not partisan. It is. It's it is. It, 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 it is. So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. And this is so let's let's take it back. Let's take it back to the Preventing Maternal Death Act, right? And even with the mom was, we have bipartisan support on it, right? We have we have Republican members of the Black Maternal Health Caucus whether or not people are aware. Um, but the way we were able to get the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act passed is sometimes the thing about politicians is you have to kind of like plant the seed in, with, of an idea and help them think that they came up with it. So what I would do is this, um, is I would position it as I like, yo, like this is not a women's, because what they were trying to do is they were trying to pigeonhole this as a women's health issue. Right. It ain't a women's health issue. It's not. It's a human rights issue. Yeah. It's a human rights issue. It is. It should be a fundamental human right for women to give birth to a healthy child and then raise to and then live to raise that child. That right. is a human rights issue. Right? right. And if I were to tell you that we lost a thousand Americans in a terrorist attack. Right. And over 80 percent of them should have survived. What expense would be spared to prevent from happening that again? Right? How many marches would we have? How many bows? How many parades? How many? We wouldn't need any. We wouldn't need any. The they would just pass it. They would just do it. Listen, executive (laughs) orders coming down from top because and and everybody would stand in front of and they would campaign on what they had done to fix it. Right? Unless it has something to do with guns. That's a whole other conversation. So. That is, that's how I, I, I kind of flip the script is I like, yo, this is not a black issue, it's not a white issue, it's not a Republican, it's not a Democrat, it's a human rights issue. And so when I would go into these offices, no matter who it was, I'd say, look, because this is you, I think this is 2017, this is the, this is the height of Trump's first term. And so everything was so politically polarized. And, and so I was like, look, in a, in a climate that is so divisive, this is something that's uniquely galvanizing. Yeah. Right. And it's uniquely bipartisan. And so to be able to distribute, distribute, to demonstrate to your constituents that you've got something done and that you were able to reach across the wild, I mean, like, oh, yeah. Right. So that's how we got people on board. And so that's how I position this when I go into Republican offices and they get it. It is just a very messy political climate. And oftentimes the point scoring and breaking, breaking rank is difficult. The other thing is 
it is tremendous. It is a tremendous challenge to get 13 bills moved at once. Okay. Right. Simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Um, so, which is why, which is why the first bill that got passed out of the, out of the package was the protecting moms that serve act because it was serving the military. Right. And so right. who's not going to get on board with that. Right. So I think that we're going to get this done. I think that it's going to take, um, it's going to pass the house, but once we get to, uh, the Senate, we're going to need, really, we need realistically four senators, um, Republican senators to get, and I've kind of got a strategy of thoughts on how we're going to get that done, but. Well, maybe I'll during, just need to go visit Cassidy again. Yeah. I'll pull up with you <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll remind him that I call for his resignation. Um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he still he still owes me a meeting, anyways. You know, like I said, they're sick. I mean, me. I think we could just, we make a dynamic duo. I'll be like, hi guys, we're back. Let's do it. I'm I mean, you, I'm not playing. I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. Like, let's I mean, go. I, 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 so um, you know, I've had some interesting meetings, um, including a meeting with Mansion. I mean, I even share. I mean, like these things. Like I said, sometimes you know, different approaches are are required, and you know, sometimes you come with your paintbrush, sometimes you come with your jackhammer. And you know, I remember when we were getting this bill done, uh, there was a one particular uh, head of the committee that was being an obstructionist, and he was dodging me. He wouldn't meet with me. You know. Interestingly enough, he was a Democrat. But what happened was, I'll tell you how, how dirty this game is. So the whole time we were fighting to get this bill done, all the Democrats were pointing at the Republicans. Republicans are the problem. Republicans are the problem. Republicans are the problem. Um, so then the midterm came. The Democrats took back control of the House, right? And so I'm like, heck yeah, like the, the Republicans are the problem, right? We're going to get this done. It's going to be like top of order, right? So then this particular this particular um, congressman, I kept on hearing, yeah, we, we want to get it done, but he's he he wants to hold. So what the deal was is he was being an obstructionist because he wanted to wait till he was the incoming chair. He was he was going to be the incoming chair of the committee, and so he wanted to pass this out of the committee when he want when he was in there so that it could look good, right? And he could score the points. And what that would have meant is we would have had to wait. A whole nother year, start from scratch, and the whole, you know, it, no. So I finally get this meeting with him. Um, and like you say, this is God would have it. This particular day, I had a full day of meetings, and he was my last meeting of the day. And as I already had um, a reporter from Now Now This, that blog, that this political blog, like the biggest political blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they were following me around Capitol Hill that day. I land in D.C. and I see this email from this reporter from the Washington Post. He's like, Charles, blah, 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 yada, yada. I'm interested in your story. I love it. I'm like, yo, I'm in D.C. I'm headed to the Hill now. You want to pull up? He's like, yeah, I'll meet you there. So now I'm around. I'm going around Capitol Hill all day with these two, the reporter from Now This and the reporter from Washington Post, right? End of the day. It's my last meeting of the day. I get there, pour my heart out, um, and... You know, he looks me in the eye and he's like, look, he's like, Charles, I'm so sorry for your boss. But I just really think that I've got some great ideas about this. I think that we should wait until the next yada, yada, yada. I said, look, I looked at him. 
I stood up and I went to the door in his office and I closed it. I said, look, let me tell you something. <laughs> Outside of your office right now, there's a reporter from the Washington Post and there's a reporter from Washington, from, from now this. One of two things is about to happen. When I walk out of this office, I'm going to walk out there and say, look, this has been an amazing day and we're so proud to have the congressman's support on this bill. We're looking forward to making our country a better, safer place for mothers and babies. Or I'm going to tell them we've tried extremely hard to get this done and we're so close to a victory. But unfortunately, the congressman feels that mothers and babies need to wait to get the support they deserve. What's it going to be? We had a vote on the floor the next week. That's what I mean by sometimes you got to bring out the pool. And sometimes you got to come in there and you got to be unafraid. Like, I don't have I don't have shit to lose. No, I have right. no aspirations for political office. I'm not right. beholden to any big donors. No big. I don't I don't have shit to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me no. Like. Like, I don't have shit to lose. And I, and I approach every single meeting in approach like this. But there are people out there that are making that are losing everything. Because you're playing. Because you're playing. Right? And sometimes you got to call people out and, and, and let them know that, you Well, know, they can get... They're so indoctrinated. Like, someone was like, you know, everything in here, minimum six years. So... Yo. Just like, wait six like years. Literally, and I'm like, like, literally, I had a meeting last year. So like, literally, was like, maybe we'll get to this in 2025. I said, excuse me? We're not, we're not, we're not, we, we like, we, it's clear you like, it's clear you haven't heard my mixtape. Like, what are you, ta- who are you talking to? Like, like, it's not, it's, it's ain't, nah, this ain't that. Maybe and what's, cool, what's so ironic about that is they're supposed to be serving us. But that's why they got to be reminded. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> why they got to be reminded. Yeah. I think that's why it's good to have like regular people come in there, not their people doing it exactly. the way, you know, like when I was coached by Kroll, this is how, it, you know, we lobby. And I'm like, nah, this, this, I'm going to do me. <laughs> and that's, and that's all you, and that's, all you can, that's all you can do. Yeah. And I think anybody respects authenticity and honesty. Like they just do, they might not disagree with you, but they're like, yo, at least this person is being real with me. At least they being um, real. Yeah. So last question, because yep. I know we can talk forever and you're so bored, um, <laughs> is what do you, you gave me, I think a sneak, but maybe it's something else. I ask everyone, what are you giving birth to next? Oh, um, I think, I think um, what I'm giving birth to next um, is an institution. Uh, and so I'm so proud of what we've accomplished with Four Cure for Moms. Um, as a movement. But one of the things I think about our community is we are void of institutions built for us by us. And so my hope is to build this um, organization into an institution that will serve families and mothers far greater than what one, you know, crazy man can do. And, you know, prayerfully far after I'm gone. I think that, um, Next, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and put it out there. Sometimes you got to put things out there. So when we talk about legislation um, and policy reform, once we get the mom the bus done, um, I think that 
the next place we're going to go is payment reform. And so what do I mean by payment reform? Um, when we talk about these issues of implicit bias, racism, the thing about implicit bias and racism is it's implicit bias. And racism is learned behavior through generation. And so somebody coming in and doing implicit bias training in a PowerPoint ain't going to fix it. It's just not. It's going to help and it's good. But so how do we fix this? Just like everything else in America, we make it about green. So um, the analogy or the solution first. Let's go with the analogy. Um, now, you know what? Let's talk about this. What we're going to do is we're going to create a fundamental standard of care for dignified birthing experiences across the board. And we are going to quantify and measure hospitals and providers' ability to meet those metrics. Right? Mm-hmm. And if they are not able to meet those metrics of treating people with dignity, regardless of where and who and how they show up, what insurance they have, what language is their native language, what they may or may not be wearing, what the color of their skin is, then they don't get paid. That's how we fix this. That's how we fix the maternal health crisis within three yeah. to five years. We make it about green, right? It's not going to be through some PowerPoint. It's not going to be through. That's how we tie this. Now, people might say that's radical. That is, that's far out. Yeah, it is. But guess what? They've already set a precedent for it, Rachel. Because in the 90s, when middle-aged white men were dying from cardiovascular disease at alarming rates, guess how they fixed it? They tied payment to performance. And how often do you hear about it compared to what it was in the late 80s and early 90s? Right. Which is insane that we have to incentivize doctors who sign like a Hippocratic code to take care of people. Well, so, so I, it is, but but here's the thing though, right? It it is it is it is it's providers, but it's also very much the institutions because there's perverse incentives, right? They are oh, totally. they're, it's they're, the payers. I mean so, payers are the problem. Payers, payers are the problem in the way that in the way that it's paid because on top of the racism. So you got the you, you're fighting against the dollar and you're fighting against these people's innate, right? Their mind, their heart, and their pocketbook, right? Right. You know, so it it is even and so oftentimes people that even may have great hearts wanting to do the right thing, their hands are tied to a certain extent yeah. for doing the being their best self. So we're gonna tie performance to payment, we're gonna turn this around. Um, and you might not see and you know, look, you know. Cause you to look at me a little bit differently because it's gonna hurt your pockets, and to see how much compassion you muster up. I love it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, so. everyone else gets performance reviews, and then, I mean, this is not a novel idea. Like, if you don't do well, you shouldn't have a job. You get paid. You get paid. Like, do your job. <laughs> like, sure. and then get paid. You don't get paid and then do a job. That's not how it works. So, I mean, I think it's brilliant and you know you have my support. So with that said, I want to give you a special thank you. And I know we're a couple days in front of Father's Day. So happy Father's Day. And I hope you feel with joy um, and love with the boys. And you have my word, anything you need um, from me as you traverse this journey, I am here for you. 